0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. Today we have the second installment in this mini-series that we are currently in the middle of about China uh, under the Chairman Mao years. Uh, this part is on the Great Famine, so we're in the middle of of the mini series. And basically, when the Chinese Communist Party, or CCP, came to power in the People's Republic of China in 1949, that's actually when the People's Republic was founded, Chairman Mao, who was the chair of the party, said, quote, not even one person shall die of hunger. And at this point, China was really already no stranger to famine. Tens of millions of people had died in famines that had swept across the nation in the late 1870s. And then again, between 1896 and 1900, there had also been a series of serious droughts um, in the 1920s. And famine had followed in the path of the Sino-Japanese War. But the worst of all of these was definitely following the Great Leap Forward, which we talked about in the previous installment of this miniseries, This movement began in 1958, and during the Great Leap Forward, China basically shifted its economy entirely from one that was based on supply and demand to a command economy, also known as a planned economy. So the government essentially planned what was going to be made and where and by whom, and all the economic decisions became centralized, as well as all the decisions about production. This process had really started before the Great Leap Forward, but that's when it really kicked into high gear. This planned economy didn't really account for variations in supply and demand or unexpected shifts in the weather or differences in labor and arable land and farming practices from one province to another. And then on top of that, the people who were making decisions in this economy didn't always understand the realities of the labor force or the work they were doing. So consequently, there were some pretty bad decisions The result was a huge famine that started in 1959, although there were a few isolated pockets that started earlier than that. In China, for many, many years, this famine was known as the three years of natural disasters, or the three difficult years, or sometimes the three years of bad weather. And while there was some bad weather in some parts of China, this famine was really not at all the result of a natural disaster of any sort.
1: No. Uh China's shift to a planned economy affected its agricultural workforce almost immediately. So there was a big focus on uniformity, implementing the same agricultural plans the same way in every province, regardless of what that province's terrain was actually like. And if there wasn't enough farmland, forest, grasslands and wetlands were to be made into arable land. Consequently, there was deforestation, which led to erosion.
0: People also wasted a whole lot of time and labor labor in fruitless efforts to transform lakes and rivers into farmland. In addition to that, people who had been nomadic livestock herders were displaced when the grasslands where they had been herding their their animals were uh, instead made into farmland.
1: And the central planners were making economic decisions, uh, but they were not farmers. And in addition to being out of their field, they were separated from the realities of the workers, the markets, and the products. So they were basically making decisions and setting goals without the information they needed to do it well. And some of the directions they gave were just simply devastating.
0: For example, in one province, an administrator changed his mind over and over about what he wanted the people to be planting. So the peasants would have to dig up every crop and replace it with another one when he changed his mind. By the time he actually settled on a crop and stuck to it, it was too late in the growing season for it to be harvested before the winter came. In another example, people in their commune were forced to plant their crops way too early in the season, and the seeds just froze in the ground.
1: So thanks to mismanagement from various angles, the harvests were basically primed to be poor. In addition
0: to the overall effect of these policies from the Great Leap Forward, one campaign in particular was extremely destructive to China's crops, and it didn't really have anything directly to do with farming. On May 18, 1958, Mao spoke at the second session of the Eighth Party Congress, and there he said, quote, the whole people, including five-year-old children, must be mobilized to eliminate the four
1: pests. So these pests were mosquitoes? flies, rats, and sparrows. And those first three probably make fairly immediate sense to most people. Uh, Mosquitoes, flies, and rats all spread disease, and they're generally thought of as dirty, and most people do not like them. And sparrows were on the list because they were eating grain. So people really set to work, in addition to the
0: mosquitoes, the flies, and the rats, uh, set to work trying to kill sparrows. Whole classrooms of students would go outside to knock down sparrows' nests, People would ring gongs and make other noise to try to frighten sparrows away from their roosts. They would just make really constant noise to keep the sparrows from landing anywhere ever. And the birds would eventually just drop from the sky because they were exhausted. For a while, sparrows actually became parts of people's diets until the birds themselves became
1: scarce. And sparrows did eat grain. I mean, we know that. Uh, but they were also eating locusts. So by 1959, the sparrow population had dropped so drastically that locusts actually became a problem in the fields. And they destroyed crops and contributed to the burgeoning famine.
0: It became pretty obvious pretty quickly that killing sparrows is a bad idea. So in 1960, the government decided that bed bugs would be the fourth pest. Um, and apart from sparrow killing and the clear role that it played in contributing to a famine... The campaign did actually reduce the spread of diseases that travel via mosquitoes, flies, and rats. So, on the one hand, it did have a small, me- but measurable positive impact. But the m- measurable effect it had on the crops was much bigger and much more terrible. This is actually we had a couple of things that led to the the this mini series, and one was that someone recommended this uh, the four pest campaign as a subject for a podcast. Um, I don't think the person who suggested it uh, realized quite how huge the consequences were. Yeah. Um, because it came about in one of the, we would like something a little lighter to talk about. <laughs> um, and it, we got a lot of things that were not at all light when we asked for that. And they were clearly jokes. And this was not one of them. Um, so before we talk about what happened when this running out of food caused by the Great Leap Forward policies and the killing of all the sparrows. Uh, before we talk about how that played out, let's take a brief moment for a word from a sponsor.
1: That sounds just fine.
0: So to return to the famine. Yes,
1: yeah, as China ran out of food, the very nature of the people's communes, which had been created as part of the Great Leap Forward, actually contributed to the famine. This was both in terms of contributing to the food shortage itself and contributing to an inability to deal with the shortage of food.
0: In case you missed the episode on the Great Leap Forward Farm collectives had been organized in, uh, together to form people's communes, and these were given overly ambitious goals for how their, big their harvests would be. The goals were simply too big for people to be able to meet them, no matter how hard they worked, no matter how many advancements were made in irrigation and farming equipment. The goals were impossible.
1: And the government had already proven that it was willing to crack down hard on dissent. Uh, That was also talked about a little bit in the um, Great Leap Forward episode. And that failure was not going to be an option. So administrators vastly over-reported how much they had harvested, so it would look like they had met these ridiculously high goals.
0: And then the government, believing there to be a surplus, encouraged the communal canteens at the communes uh, and elsewhere in the provinces to serve, serve really lavish meals uh, the government continued exporting grain and providing food aid to other nations. Um, agricultural laborers also needed more food than before because they were being expected to work in other industries during their farms off season. So a year or so into the Great Leap, thanks to all of these things we've already talked about, many parts of China ran out
1: of food. And when this happened, the communal canteens, which were supposed to be a way to keep China's workers fed, actually became a primary contributor to the famine. Even before the canteens ran out of food, in the most remote provinces, it could be miles from where people lived and worked to where they were supposed to eat. So on top of the backbreaking labor that came along with the Great Leap Forward's astronomical projected targets uh, for their production, people had to then walk great distances to and from the communal canteens just to get their meals. The canteens also distributed
0: food based on people's ability to work. So as food became scarce... Children and the elderly especially received less and less food because they weren't working. So basically, populations who were already at risk for various health effects were getting the least food. When things got really dire, people even started stealing food from the government-run preschools, daycares, and nursing homes.
1: Pregnant women were also particularly at risk. So their bodies, of course, needed more nourishment. So they were already at a disadvantage because the portions were simply not sufficient to sustain the whole uh, process they were Going through
0: building another human inside yeah. of themselves. Yeah, that
1: takes some calories. Uh, and then as workloads got higher and higher, those pregnant women weren't really able to keep up with the physical demands that were made of them. So we're not saying at all that pregnant women can't work, but this was seriously backbreaking labor that was really hard, even on like very hale and hearty people. So this was driving, you know, young, healthy people to exhaustion. So add to that. Again, creating another human, which is also very exhausting in many ways. It's a pretty impossible scenario. Right. When the
0: food supply dwindled, the very tool the Chinese government had created to feed its workers had no means to feed them anymore. The communes were supposed to be dishing out free meals and there just was no more food to dish out. So in 1959 and 1960, the government's recommendations turned to food augmentation and food substitution, uh, the government had actually, actually already decreed that people not eat meat at all before they started making these recommendations. So people were already making some dietary swaps. Um, you know, anyone who had eaten meat previously and no, no longer could, people were already swapping other things into their diet before these official official recommendations
1: came into play. And food augmentation was basically a collection of cooking and preparation methods that added bulk to meals without requiring more ingredients. So it started by augmenting rice dishes with corn until corn also became scarce. And then it evolved to taking rice that was partly cooked, grinding it up in a mill, adding yeast, and steaming it as it started to leaven. And this produced buns that required less flour than normal.
0: Yeah, the reason that corn was considered an augment when we think of corn as food is that corn was more used for animal feed than for people Um, At that point, different augmentation methods were devised based on what was available to eat in various regions of China. And while these methods might have yielded a larger volume of food, they didn't really increase the nutritional content of the food. So while people had physically more food to eat, they didn't have a corresponding increase in calories or nutrients. So edema or fluid retention, which is a side effect of malnourishment, became endemic.
1: In July of 1960, when it was clear that augmentation was simply not enough to solve the problem, China started encouraging food substitutions.
0: First, people were encouraged to swap fruits and vegetables into their diet in place of grain. But by this point, uh, even before the government made this recommendation, a lot of provinces had already run out of their food, their fruit and vegetable
1: surplus because people were doing
0: exactly that.
1: Uh, people started scavenging bark, roots, and even wild plants. Some resorted to eating white clay, which contained calcium, but also sometimes caused constipation, in some cases so badly that it was fatal. People cultivated chlorella, which is a type of
0: algae that was being used as pig feed for human consumption. So they either grew it in puddles or in pots in their homes, and they would feed the chlorella urine, either their own urine or urine from their animals.
1: And the list of food substitutes grew. Uh, the husks and stalks of grain crops, like corn and rice, uh, became adopted as food items. Potato stems, lichen, insects, tree bark, at least where the trees had not been felled to make room for farmland. Wild vegetables and wild fungi were all kind of added into the diet wherever possible. But the some of these substitutes, especially the wild vegetables and the fungi,
0: were really either inedible or poisonous, and people got sick from eating them. People also got sick from eating food that was spoiled. And there was one uh, official that was on a tour and found a home where people were using human waste uh, as fertilizer, but the human waste they were using was basically all fiber, because all they had been eating was this undigestible husks and stalks of other plants.
1: And in some provinces, uh, this again harkens back a little bit to um, the previous episode in this mini series. people's cooking implements had been confiscated to force them to eat in the communal canteens. But in these parts of China, people couldn't prepare substitutes for themselves, even if they wanted to.
0: So because of all this, people were dying through starvation, poisoning and malnutrition related diseases, as well as a sharp increase in violent crimes and suicides. And in
1: desperation, some people also turned to cannibalism. There were more than 1000 reports of people being eaten, sometimes after being killed. Human flesh was even traded on the black market as a meat.
0: People also trafficked women and children in exchange for food. Just
1: dire all around. It
0: was extremely dire. I, I saw various statistics. A, a lot of the record keeping during this period was not great. And some of it was actually pretty good, but has been kept secret for a really long time. Um, huge spikes in all kinds of violent crimes just because people were so desperate for anything to eat at all.
1: And China had been strict and swift in punishing people who spoke out. So most of the resistance on the part of workers was in the form of idling. They would pretend to work. They would work slowly. Uh, there was some food stealing. Or they would conceal what they had harvested uh, and they would squirrel away the rest of it. Uh, people also ate food raw in the fields as they worked. And so when harvest time arrived in 1960, some places actually had nothing to harvest because of this. The food had literally been eaten right out of the crops.
0: As the famine got worse, some people started to leave the rural areas. Tens of millions of people moved into cities. And this was actually in defiance of bans on migration. People often didn't have much better lives in the city. They wound up doing the most menial, dangerous, and dirty work available, usually for the least money. This big influx of new residents also strained the city's resources. In some places, like the whole healthcare system basically collapsed because of the influx of uh, sick and starving people from the country.
1: And the government, for its part, chalked up the famine and all of these deaths to, quote, class enemies who were sabotaging the people's communes, in their opinion. The government's slogan at this point was, good days make up for the bad ones.
0: During the famine, dignitaries from other nations who visited China were generally given escorted tours that went to areas that weren't affected. You know, although food was scarce in pretty much all of China, things were the worst in rural rural areas. And even within China, there was, for almost two years, a great effort at every level to make it seem as though things were proceeding normally.
1: And even so, other nations really did get wind that something was not quite right. Something was amiss. Uh, the Red Cross offered aid, but made the mistake of starting by asking whether Tibet needed help. And this was just after the uprising in Tibet that led to the Dalai Lama's flight to India. When China replied that Tibet was fine, the Red Cross asked whether China was okay, too. Since China's position was that Tibet was part of China, it there was really some umbrage taken and unilaterally declined the Red Cross's attempt to help.
0: Yeah, that this was basically the biggest faux pas that the Red Cross could have made yeah. when asking if China needed their help was to insinuate that Tibet was not part of China. Um eventually, a couple of Chinese officials were instrumental in convincing Chairman Mao and the rest of the Chinese Communist Party that they had to end the Great Leap Forward and stop the famine. Uh, One was Liu Shaoqi, who at that point was the head of the Chinese head of state. And for a while, he was considered to be Mao's heir apparent in terms of leading the CCP.
1: Liu saw conditions in China that horrified him when he toured it in April of 1961. People were starving to death, and entire villages were virtually empty. The homes of the people who had died or fled had even been dismantled and used as fuel for the fires. And no one would tell him the truth about what happened. One of those stops was in his home village, where he found
0: really horrific conditions, including a communal canteen that had almost nothing to eat. A lot of people were starving or had starved. He realized when he was visiting that the reason he had stopped getting letters from home was that the people who knew him couldn't lie to him. And they were also too afraid to tell him the truth. So consequently, they just stopped writing. He held a village meeting at which he said, quote, I haven't returned home for nearly 40 years. I really wanted to come home for a visit. Now I have seen how bitter your lives are. We have not done our jobs well and we beg for your pardon.
1: From that point on, uh, Liu became an important outspoken critic of the Great Leap Forward's policies, placing the blame for it directly on the Chinese Communist Party, not on the weather, class enemies, or any of the other scapegoats that have been used thus far.
0: He came to a sad end, which we will probably talk about in our next episode in this in- installment. Uh, Li Fuchun, the chairman of the State Planning Commission, was another person who really helped the Chinese government backtrack out of this mess. He orchestrated the nation's retreat from the Great Leap Forward plan. He had really supported the plan and had stuck to the party line before Liu's scathing criticisms when he came back from his visit to his home village.
1: Lee described the leap forward as too high, too big, too equal, too dispersed, too chaotic, too fast, and too inclined to transfer resource. Under his direction, they put plans together to lower the astronomical
0: production targets and to right the economy. He still really stood by Chairman Maldo and said that his directives had been entirely correct, but that everyone else had made mistakes in implementing them. Um, this famine actually had some enormous consequences long term for China. And we will talk about those after another brief word from a sponsor. All righty. So to talk about the consequences of the famine, as the famine reached a really critical point, The Chinese government started returning private plots of land to the peasantry so people could grow food again. And this was a solution, but of course not one that was immediate. They didn't instantly have food the minute minute they got farmland, necessarily, unless it just happened to be the right season. They also got rid of the dining halls and started importing grain to feed people. China's own supply of grain, having been so damaged by all of this, didn't really start to grow back again until 1962, uh, at which point the government started redistributing some of the harvest back to the people.
1: A lot of the Great Leap Forward's industrial projects were never finished because the labor to do them starved to death.
0: Uh, According to the Chinese State Statistical Bureau, 10 million people died. According to Western estimates that have been extrapolated from census records, the number was really more like between 35 million and 45 million. And it wasn't all because of starvation, as we've said in a couple of episodes now. Some of it was due to disease and suicide and violent crime. In Xinjiang, 67,000 people were clubbed to death for various infractions.
1: And not surprisingly, the famine also took a pretty significant toll on China's birth rate. In 1957, China's total fertility was 6.4 children per woman. By 1961, it was 3.3 children per woman. Births dropped from 34 per 1,000 people to just 18.2 per 1,000.
0: This whole subject was taboo in China and was censored for many, many years until in May of 2012, Lin Zibo, who was head of the Gansu branch of the People's Daily News Service, made some posts that denied that the famine had ever really happened. First person accounts of it then went viral on Chinese social
1: media. Uh Yang Jisheng, who was once a Chinese reporter, spent 10 years on a secret effort to find as much documentation of what had really happened as he possibly could. He combed through official accounts that had been buried or hidden. And the result is an enormous two-volume work that is banned in China, but circulated through bootleg copies. It was at least banned as of 2012, and we weren't able to determine whether it is still banned today. Right. And his point of view is he, he doesn't care
0: that it's being bootlegged and passed around China. He wants people to have access to the history that is found there. The English version is much shorter. Um, it's sort of a more edited, streamlined version. The His two-volume one is basically everything he could find at all. Um, the Folk History Project collected oral histories of the famine through the work of 108 volunteers who put their work into different um, creative and documentary projects.
1: A lot of people uh, quote Chairman Mao as saying, when there is not enough to eat, people starve to death. It is better to let half the people die so that others can eat their fill. And while he did definitely say that, it seems from context that he was speaking metaphorically about workloads. The rest of the statement that quote comes from is about production, not about people literally having enough food to eat. So yeah. people pull that quote out in reference to this, but th- yeah. they're using it kind of out of context. It
0: came from the same era. That is a thing he said. It was probably not the most thoughtful thing to say during a time when people were starving to death. Uh, but it came up, it's from... a a sort of paragraph at a meeting that's all about, like, industry targets. That's not about people actually having enough food to eat. So that is, like, the quote itself is accurate, but I think people apply it to the famine when it was not really about the famine.
1: And how clear are we on how much he actually realized what was going on?
0: There is... Concrete evidence that he and the rest of the Chinese Communist Party leadership were aware that people were starving as early as 1959. Um, but action was not really taken. They, so when we had our episodes about the, uh, the Irish potato famine, mm-hmm. we, we told this story of basically government inaction. Like for a long time, everybody was like, yeah, that'll sort itself out. Yeah. And this was not that. It was more like, we just have to stick to the plan and it will work out if we just get over this hurdle.
1: Right. And like they thought it was a growing pain of the process and not.
0: Yeah. And that, you know, maybe these augmentations and substitutions would be enough to get them over this and it, it would, it would work. I also found reference in one place to, uh, the great leap forward having implemented farming practices that were bad and planting crops that were not compatible with each other in the same field. I, I could not find any uh, confirmation of that besides this one source, so I don't know if that really happened. But, um, yeah, it was sort of, they had this <laughs> stubborn insistence that this would really work and it was the way to make China great because the, it was all part of a plan to try to put China on par with the UK in 15 years and with the United States in 30. So nobody wanted to back down from it, which is devastating, really. Yeah, Like, these were not evil people who wanted people to starve to death, but they
1: also were not. They thought that was sort of like a sacrificial period they were going to have to get through to get to the amazing part. Right. A little misguided.
0: Yeah. Uh, And less upsetting.
1: Do you have email? I do have listener mail. I
0: also have a correction that a couple of people have written to us about in our episode about the discovery of longitude. There's a shipwreck that is very important to that story. That shipwreck happened off the Isles of Scilly. Ah. Not the island of Sicily. Ah. This is 100% my reading comprehension error. I think that's
1: a pretty common one.
0: Yeah. Well, and as I was like typed it in and, uh, and Wikipedia came up, and the very top of Wikipedia is like, not to be confused with. Like, oh yeah. <laughs> thanks, Wikipedia. <laughs> I was confused with, um, anyway, to reiterate, we do not use Wikipedia as a source on this podcast. I also have actual listener mail. It is from Brianna. She says, hi, Holly and Tracy. I've been listening to your podcast for the last six months and you have quickly become my favorite thing to listen to in the mornings. Your podcast actually makes me look forward to my commute each week, which is a small miracle. I'm writing in response to your Battle of Blair Mountain episode. You talked about company towns created by the mines in West Virginia, and I wanted to bring to your attention another company town, which many people have never heard of, Lanai City, Hawaii. I was privileged to live on Lanai, a tiny island next to Maui, Hawaii, for six months, and I fell in love with the people and culture. Lanai is privately owned and was once the world's largest pineapple plantation owned by James Dole until he sold it in 1992. When I lived on the island, I heard from the people there that Mr. Dole sent his foreman to the Philippines in 1912 to bring back uneducated Filipino Filipino men to work on his plantation. He didn't want them to read or write and organize against him. Ultimately, women were allowed and families began to grow. Workers didn't own their homes, used tokens to shop at the company-owned store, and had to deal with an abrupt change in lifestyle once Dole moved their plantation, ironically, to the Philippines in 1992. I've never been able to find any research on the island to confirm what I heard from my friends there. In fact, there's not writ- not much written about it at all. I hope I've given you enough info to pique your interest. I think Lanai and the Dole Plantation would make for a fantastic episode. This may be true. <laughs> However, I will confess that when listeners write to us and say, I've looked a lot for this information and I can't find it, usually we can't find it either.
1: We don't have a magical portal of research. (laughs) I wish we did. I mean, we, we, you know, we get paid to do this among other parts of our jobs so we can devote some extra time to doing it. And we're both, I think, fairly good at, you know, ferreting out things that might be a little bit difficult to locate.
0: Well, having a boyfriend who's a librarian is also quite useful.
1: Lord it over us. Um, But yes, if you, if it's hard for you to find much information, especially if you live there in the midst of it, uh, it may not. Yeah. It may not be so easy, but you never know what'll happen.
0: Yeah, she goes on to say that um it's the island has changed hands a few times and now it's owned by Larry Ellison of Oracle.
1: I think the best way to research this is to get on a plane and go to Hawaii. Uh I was thinking the best <laughs> way to research
0: it is to go to Disney World and eat Dole whip. Well, that's what I kept could. thinking about every time. Because there's that
1: Disneyland, that's closer to Hawaii. Yeah.
0: Every time she says Dole. <laughs> Thank you very much, Brianna, for this letter. Uh, maybe we will manage to find some information, but I have a feeling that if you have looked for information and not found it, that we probably will not find it either. Which is, you never know. Well, maybe. We will see. If you would like to write to us, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash History and on Twitter at History. Our Tumblr is com, and we're on Pinterest at Pinterest.com slash History. We have a Spreadshirt store full of all kinds of awesome merch. And that is at missedinhistory.spreadshirt.com. If you would like to learn more about what we've talked about today, come to the website of our parent company, HowStuffWorks.com, and put the word famine into the search bar. You will find the depressing read, How Famine Works. You can also come to our website where you will find the show notes for this episode. That will include all of the sources that we used on it. If you would like more details about specifics, there are a couple of books uh, there are at least two books that I read on this list. There are three books, no, four. There are four books on this list uh, that you may be interested in if you would like more detail about it. Uh, you can do that at our website, which is mistinhistory.com, or you can read about famine on howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com.